All right, guys, we'll go ahead and get started. Um, thank you again for coming back. Uh, I know y'all probably have a fun day ahead of you. Also know that today's Wednesday, it's hump day, so you just stick the middle of the week. You, you had your first full day yesterday. I know you're probably a little more tired this morning than you were yesterday morning, and that's great. That's a good thing. Uh, so I'm going to tell plenty of stories today and hopefully keep you guys engaged. Um, first off, just a little recap. Yesterday we talked about how we were created for stories, how stories shape and mold us more than anything else. And we talked about how God is the master storyteller. But today I want to introduce you to another master storyteller. And we actually see him in Genesis 3. He comes into the garden. He tells a story to Adam and Eve. He convinces them that they should eat from that tree that God told them not to eat from. They do. And all creation is ruined and broken because of it. And Satan, that master storyteller, has been deceiving God's people every generation since. And he still does it today. And so what I want to talk about today are some of the false stories that Satan and that the world and that our flesh are telling us. Those false narratives that can lead us astray. And I want you to have wisdom to recognize those stories in the world today because they might be things that you're not fully aware of. These are the stories that the world is trying to tell us through TV and movies and culture and internet and social media and all these things. They're trying to tell us these stories that will lead us astray. And you need to be able to recognize that and have wisdom. First off, turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter 5. We're going to look at verses 8 through 11. It's towards the very end. It's right before all the first John, all the first John, second John, third John, Jude, and Revelation. Those are the only books after it. First Peter five, Be sober-minded and be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this day and for this week and a chance to be here. Thank you for loving us, for giving us stories that shape us and mold us. And God, I pray that you would use the story of Scripture to outshine the stories that this world is telling us but also not just to outshine, but to shine light on them so that we might know them and see them for what they really are, the lies of the enemy that lead us astray. So would you give us that wisdom to help recognize that and see it and help, help us to see that our enemy is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking for someone to devour. That the lies that we tend to believe in, those are not just little white lies that 
that mess things up, that this, these are the very lies that are intended to destroy us, and they will if we continue to buy into them. So will you free us from that through the gospel? Because that is the only way we are freed. And God, would you speak through me now and give me words in Christ's name, amen. I want you to see a little bit of how stories shape and mold us. A, a survey came out a few years ago that said that customers are 63% more likely to buy a product due to a testimonial. A testimonial is like a story that someone will write or give about a certain product. And if a story is attached to a product, then customers are 63% more likely to buy it. Uh, so back in, just a few years ago, there were these two guys who ran a social experiment uh, guys named Rob Walker and Joshua Glenn, they wanted to see if they could resell cheap knickknacks that they picked up at thrift stores and antique shops. And the, the rule that they had was that these knickknacks had to be absolutely useless. They couldn't have any, like, actually, like, it couldn't be, like, you know, a fork that you could use or a shovel or something. They had to be things that serve really no purpose, like a garden gnome or like a little wooden horse you would put on a mantle somewhere, okay? So they picked up all these different items. They spent a total of $129 getting all this stuff together. And then they hired over 200 creative writers to write fake stories about each item. Stories like, uh, some of them were funny, some of them were sentimental. Stories like, oh, I used to work in the garden with my mom and one day I accidentally broke the gnome with the shovel and she didn't get mad. She went inside and glued it together with me. And it was a sweet memory. And it's still been sitting in our garden for 20 years now. And I'm just, I'm sad to part with it. That sort of thing. Completely made up. And they sold these items on eBay. And they turned $129 into an $8,000 profit. Purely because they added fake stories to each item. You know what that says? It says that we... Buy stories, not products. We were made for stories. And the world is not trying to sell you things. They're trying to sell you stories. Satan is trying to sell you stories. And I want you to be aware of that. I want you to see that and recognize them when they come. So today I want to talk about some of the false stories or the false narratives that this world is telling us. Number one, false story. We're going to dive right in, okay? The number one thing we're going to talk about today, listen to your heart. Listen to your heart. There's a false story that the world is telling you. How many of y'all have seen the movie Moana? I like Moana. It's a, it's a fun movie. The music's fantastic. It's really well made. Disney does a lot of good, fun stuff. But like any Disney story, there are going to be things in there that just, you know, they're just not true. <laughs> so let me just talk about a little part of Moana that is just not true. Moana is this little girl who lives on an island out in the middle of the Pacific, and her father is the chief. And she lives in this sweet little community. Her father's been taking care of the community. Her father wants her to grow up and be the leader. It's a very progressive idea, okay? Uh, so she, he wants her to be the leader and to take over and serve these people and love her community well. But Moana has something different inside of her. She has this longing to go out beyond the reef. 
which is very interesting because remember yesterday how I, t- I talked about how you know parents didn't want their kids to go into the woods. Uh, like they set this rule, this boundary of like don't go beyond the reef. And what does Moana want to do? She wants to go beyond the reef because there's this rule that says she can't. All right, she wants to experience life out there and she's torn, she's conflicted, she doesn't know what to do. And she sings this song. She says, I can lead with pride, I can make us strong, I'll be satisfied if I play along, but the voice inside sings a different song. What is wrong with me? And then the grandmother comes in. And the grandmother is kind of this kooky outcast who is also presented as like the voice of reason, who you know is like the smart one, even though she's kind of goofy and weird. She comes and says this to Moana. You are your father's daughter, stubbornness and pride. Mind what he says, but remember, you may hear a voice inside. And when that voice starts to whisper, follow the farthest star. Moana, that voice inside is who you are. That is a lie from the pit of hell, okay? (laughs) That is not true. That voice inside of you is not who you are. Don't believe what Moana's grandmother is trying to tell you, okay? Because it's not true. And this is what the world is trying to tell us. And I won't get into this too deep, but guys, we have all this identity crisis in our world of people, especially teenagers, trying to figure out who we are. Do you know why that crisis is there? Because the world is trying to tell you to listen to that voice inside of you. And that voice inside of you is just screaming a thousand different things and you don't know what to believe. Do you know why? The Bible tells us why. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Let me repeat that again. Let's break that down for a second. The heart is deceitful above some things. No, all things. There is nothing more deceitful than your own heart. It is deceitful above all things and it's desperately sick. Who can understand it? You think the Bible doesn't know what you're going through every day when, you, when you're trying to figure out who you are and listen to your heart? The Bible tells you, look, I know that you have a thousand voices inside of you screaming and trying to tell you who you are. Don't listen to them. Your heart is deceitful above all things. It's desperately sick. You can't understand it. What are we supposed to listen to instead? God's Word. Because God's Word tells us who we are. When we listen to that little voice inside of us, we will be led astray. That is the voice that Satan wants us to buy into. Instead, we are to listen to God's heart and be driven by that. That's the first lie. Listen to your heart. Second lie. You are your own hero. You are your own hero. I'm going to pick on Disney again. There's this show that my kids watch called The Lion Guard. It's basically like a spinoff of The Lion King, and it's, it's fine. I like that show, but again, it's Disney, and there's things wrong with it. And there's this scene where this hippo is talking to a little elephant. The elephant's like super insecure because he's not strong with like all the other elephants in his tribe, and, and the hippo is trying to encourage him, and this is what the hippo says. The hippo says, no need to worry. Hold your head up with pride. Believe in yourself. There's no reason to hide. It's there within you, the hero inside. Again, that's a lie. You have no hero inside of you that is just going to come out and save you when you need him, okay? 
that hero doesn't exist inside of you. Because the world wants you to believe that you can just pick yourself up by the bootstraps and save yourself and rescue yourself and that you need to do it yourself, that you shouldn't rely on anyone else, especially God. That's what the world wants us to believe. That's what Satan wants you to believe, that you are your own hero. Let me give you proof of why that is so false. Let me tell you a story about something that happened to me. I started working with RYM a year and a half ago. And my first day on the job, we were in Nashville, Tennessee, working a youth leader training conference. And my first task that my bosses gave me was to go to the grocery store, pick up two gallon buckets of ice cream, bring it back and put it in the freezer. And I was like, gee, thanks for believing in me. Um, I think I can handle that. Little did I know. So I get the ice cream, bring it back. Nobody's really showed up yet at the camp, so the dining hall's empty. I walk in, and I go back to the kitchen. The kitchen's pitch black dark. It's a big, industrial-sized kitchen, but there's music playing somewhere in the back. <coughs> so I walk in, and I go, hello? No answer. Hello? So I'm holding the ice cream, and I fiddle around with my elbow on the wall until I find a light switch, and I flick it on, and there before me in the back of the room is this guy just standing there staring at me in the dark and i'm like oh hey um i need to uh to, to, to put this ice cream somewhere and he stares at me for another awkward five seconds or so and then he goes you can put it in my freezer and he turns around and just starts walking i'm like oh okay I'm, I'm just gonna follow you here we go so i follow him down long, dark corridors of this industrial-sized kitchen with you know, utensils and knives and everything scattered around on the walls. We go into this walk-in refrigerator. There's cabinets and stuff lining the walls and everything. It's cold in there. But we walk through that to another door that leads to the walk-in freezer. And it's like zero degrees in there. He opens the door and it's maybe 10 feet by 10 feet. It's not big, but it's not small. And he points to the back corner to an open spot on the shelf. And he says, you can put the ice cream back there. So I'll walk in, pick up the first gallon bucket, put it up there, pick up the second bucket, put it up next uh, beside it, turn around. The door is closed and the guy is gone. And in my head, I'm kind of giggling a little bit, maybe just to relieve the tension, but I'm giggling because I'm thinking, okay, this is real life. But wouldn't it be hilarious if the door was locked? Like, this is how every horror movie would end, okay? And so I'm walking towards the door, kind of laughing, telling myself this, and I pull on the door handle, and it doesn't budge. And that's when I realize he locked me in the freezer. Starting to panic a little bit. Starting to freak out. But then I remember I have a phone in my pocket. So I said to myself, I'm going to pull it out. I'm going to call my boss. I'm going to say, get down here to the kitchen, come to the walk-in freezer, open the door, arrest that man, and then we can just go about our day. I pull my phone out, and in the top left corner, it reads, no service. Of course I don't have service. I'm locked in an airtight metal container in the middle of nowhere. And that's when the panic really sets in, because there is no other way out. It is just this door, and it's locked and I have no way of communicating with the outside world. And I'm thinking, this is it? This, this is how I go? 
Of all the ways I thought I would die, I didn't think it would end like this. They are going to find my cold, lifeless body clutching a half-eaten gallon of ice cream in the back corner of a walk-in freezer at Camp Widgeywagon. Because the last thing I'm going to do before I freeze to death is eat as much ice cream as possible. I was freaking out at this point, and the only thing I can think to do is to walk up and just start pounding on the door and I'm just screaming at the top of my lungs, help, help me, somebody let me out, I'm locked in the freezer. I'm just screaming as loud as I can. This goes on for like a good 60 seconds, which is a long time when you think you're about to die, okay? <clears throat> and all of a sudden I hear somebody fiddling on the other side of the door and I get really quiet and I hear this, <sighs> the vacuum still releases and this waft of warm air washes over me. And there standing before me is the guy who locked me in. I immediately stick my foot in the door so he can't close it again. And I said, dude, what are you doing? You locked me in the walk-in freezer. I've been pulling and pulling on it. It wouldn't budge. And he looks at me and goes, did you try pushing it? (laughs) (laughs) So it turns out the door to the walk-in freezer was a push and not a pull. And in my panic, I failed to try the only other option that was presented to me. Guys, I had two choices, pull or push. I went with the pulling method. That didn't work. And I said, that's it. I'm done. I'm going to die in here. Didn't even think to try the only other option out there. You know why? Because we're stupid, okay? When we, when human beings are under stress, we tend to do the stupidest things in the world. What in the world makes us believe that we can be our own heroes when I can't even save myself from an unlocked freezer, okay? We cannot be our own heroes. It won't happen. Sin has corrupted us and ruined us so much that we cannot rescue ourselves. We need a hero outside of ourselves to come and save us. And that's what the gospel teaches. Guys, I mentioned this yesterday. I love the Marvel movies and the MCU. One of the things I love about those movies is that it teaches us that there is a hero outside of us who can save us when we can't save ourselves. And oftentimes that hero will save us at great cost to themselves. That's the gospel story. That's a a redemptive story worth listening to. Okay? You are not your own hero. You cannot save yourself. Jesus Christ is the only one. Number three, outward appearance is everything. Outward appearance is everything. Let me tell you another story. When I first moved to Houston, I had a 2007 white Pontiac Grand Prix that I was super proud of. But I lived in a pretty rough neighborhood, rough apartment complex, and my car got broken into like three times in the first month I was listening to. I was living there. And, and the, the crazy thing was is that I had nothing of value in my car. So people would just break in, look around, and go, well, there's nothing here. And then they'd just close the door and leave. And, but one person actually stripped the keyhole so that I couldn't like use my key to unlock the door anymore. And I didn't have a keyhole on the passenger side or the trunk. It was just the one on the driver's side. And then my little clicker stopped working. I probably could have gotten a new battery for that, but I was young and stupid, and I don't know how to rescue myself from unlocked things. And so I just, I just said, well, I guess I can't lock my door anymore. So anytime I went anywhere, I had to leave my car doors unlocked. Well, this one night, I went to Walmart to pick a few things up. And it's kind of late at night. The parking lot's fairly empty. My car is parked under one of those big lamps in the parking lot that lights up everything around it. And I'm walking out 
with my bags in hand, and I look up and there is a woman sitting in my driver's seat trying to crank my engine. My first thought was, uh, okay, my car door's unlocked, she went in by accident, she, you know, this is a mistake, she thinks she's in her car. But then she looks up and makes eye contact with me and sees me staring at her, and she gives me this look like a kid who just got caught with his hand in the cookie jar, and then I realize she's stealing my car right in front of me, and her eyes get wide, she starts desperately trying to crank the engine before I can get to her. And I'm like, oh my gosh, she's stealing my car. And I drop my groceries and I start running. And she looks up and she's really panicking at this point. She's like, I gotta get out of here before he comes close to me. I gotta steal his car. And then I see her fiddling with the door trying to lock it before I can get to her because clearly my keys don't work. And that's when I start to freak out and I sprint as fast as I can. I get to the door handle before she can press it. I pull the door open. She reaches behind her and grabs phone pulls it out and says stop her I'll call the cops and I said you stop her I'll call the cops and she goes what are you talking about this is my car oh. and she looks around and goes this isn't my car I said yeah it's my car and she goes oh I'm so sorry I thought this was mine so it was just a huge misunderstanding I thought she was stealing my car she thought I was coming to attack her in the middle of a dark parking lot it was kind of funny. We giggled over it a little bit. She gets up and leaves two aisles over to where her white Pontiac Grand Prix is. <laughs> and, and I sit down in my car, and I'm very relieved. My heart is racing because I thought she was trying to steal my car right from under my nose. But then I get in the driver's seat, and the seat has been scooted up like 10 inches. The steering wheel has been lowered. The rearview mirror has been adjusted, and all the side mirrors have been angled inward. And I thought, she did all this? And not once did it occur to her that maybe she was in the wrong car. And then I hear a tap at my window, and it's the woman. I roll my window down, and she goes, I'm sorry. Can I get my groceries out of your trunk? <laughs> I had, like, basketball shoes and a guitar in there. None of that tipped her off. Not once did she stop to think, maybe I'm in the wrong car. And I know I'm making fun of this woman, but truth is, that's actually a very human thing to do. Because you know what she did? She walked in the parking lot, she saw a white Pontiac Grand Prix, and the outside looked exactly like hers, and she said, that's my car, and completely ignored all of the inward things that should have pointed her to, to the truth. And don't we do that every day? We get so hung up on the outward appearance of something that we completely ignore the things on the inside that should be pointing us to the truth. Outward appearance is not everything. Let's talk about that a little bit more. Let's talk about the selfie generation. Two years ago, CNN reported that 55% of plastic surgeons said that they saw patients who only wanted to improve how they look in selfies. Over half of the plastic surgeons in our country said that they saw patients who came to them for the pure purpose of just looking better in selfies. Because we are a culture that is obsessed with outward appearance and self -care. CNN also reported this thing called Snapchat dysmorphia. It is an actual clinical term. It sounds like kind of a funny made-up thing. It is an actual psychological clinical term. And what it means is this. When you take a picture of yourself on social media and you put it through one of those Snapchat, Instagram filters that makes yourself better looking, when you see that better looking version of yourself staring back at you, you begin to think that that's what you're supposed to look like all the time and it actually warps your self-image. And there's a clinical term for that called Snapchat dysmorphia. 
that changes the way that we see ourselves. That's kind of what social media is doing because it makes us obsessed with outward appearance. And do you know how it has made us obsessed with outward appearance? Ironically, it is through stories. In 2000, this is fascinating. In 2016, Instagram launched the stories section of their homepage where you can put a picture or a video or something or text and it would disappear in 24 hours. But this is just a fun little way for you to tell a story about your day. Since introducing the stories section of their homepage, Instagram has added 600 million new users in three years. And over 400 million people claim that they use Instagram stories on a daily basis. Not just sometimes, but every single day. 400 million people use that every single day. Isn't it interesting that the way that our culture has become so obsessed with social media and outward appearance is through what? Stories. Stories influence us and shape us in ways that we can't even understand. That's what has happened to us. And look, I'm not saying social media is bad. I'm not saying Instagram, that you need to go cancel your Instagram account. I, I have Instagram. There are plenty of good things out there. I'm just saying you need wisdom. You need wisdom. Because if our enemy is roaming around like a prowling lion, then social media is like the savannah. It's where he is most at home. You need to be aware of that. And you know what? A lot of you, considering the fact that you're in middle school, may not be mature enough to really navigate that world, and you need accountability on social media. I'm just gonna say, you need parents, youth leaders, somebody older than you, more, more experienced in life than you, more wise than you, to help you navigate that world. Because again, like we said yesterday, you're not meant to live this Christian life alone. And that, that includes social media. Like, what makes us think that, like, you know, we need help from all these other places, but we can have this, like, little account, this little section of our lives on social media that nobody else can touch. You need accountability. You need people in your life to help you walk through that. Okay? That's just my one little social media spill here. But it comes from this part of us that becomes obsessed with outward appearance. That's where it starts. And I want you to know that outward appearance is not everything. 1 Samuel 16, 7. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Thinking that outward appearance is everything is a lie. All right, number four. Life is an individual journey. There's a guy named David Brooks who writes for the New York Times. He wrote an article a few months ago called Five Lies Our Culture is Telling Us. And one of those lies was this one. Life is an individual journey. And the idea is this. This is what the world wants you to believe. That life is all about racking up experiences, not responsibilities. That life is all about gaining new, fun, cool experiences not responsibilities. And so what that looks like is a life that is driven by resumes and putting cool things on your bucket list or your memories. And like, this is what life is all about is going out and gaining all these cool things. And so because of that, we think that life is all about being unattached, maybe being unfettered, not being tied down going out and having these really cool experiences, when what he says here, and this is a secular writer in a secular 
uh, article saying that studies have shown that people who actually tie themselves down and live small, faithful lives of responsibility actually live more fulfilling lives. Because I think God created us that way. I, I think that when we get to heaven, I think we will be surprised that the first people who are celebrated are people, not the big famous Christians, but they're going to be the people nobody's heard of. Steve the plumber from Toledo, Ohio, who just did his job faithfully for 40 years and loved his family and his community well. And these are the people that Jesus welcomes in and says, well done, my good and faithful servant. Because we read yesterday that God cares about faithfulness in the little things. And part of that includes taking on responsibilities and serving. So to, to sum up this point, here's what I would say. There's nothing wrong with going on cool vacations or getting these awesome experiences or coming to the beach. You're going to have great memories and fun here. That's great stuff. But life is about serving, not gaining. Life is about taking on responsibilities, not just seeking fun adventures and fun experiences. But the world wants you to believe the opposite. They want you to believe that life is all about putting as many cool things on your life resume as possible and getting this, getting into the best colleges so that you can get the best jobs, so that you can have the most money, so that you can have the best house, so that you can have the best car, so that you can have the best vacations, so that eventually you can retire and have enough money to go on other grand adventures and eventually you die and what has your life been about? That's exactly what Satan wants you to think on your deathbed, to look back on your life and go, what have I been doing this whole time? I've been chasing after experiences. That's not what life is about. Satan wants us to buy into that lie. Last one, number five. Okay, we talked about listen to your heart. That's a lie. You are your own hero. That's a lie. Outward appearance is everything. That's a lie. And life is an individual journey. That's a lie. Number five. This might be the most important one we talk about today. This is a lie that our culture is telling us. This is a lie that probably a lot of your schools are telling us and definitely... Most universities are telling us this is a lie that maybe even your own heart is telling you. It's the lie that the Bible is unreliable, that you can't trust the Bible. I know that a lot of you probably come in here and you, you maybe you're thinking, I believe in the Bible, but I don't really know why. I just believe it because everybody tells me it's true. Or maybe you're thinking, everybody tells me the Bible's true, but I don't know if I believe that because I've never really seen any evidence of it being true. Listen, I could not begin to cover, like, first off, I don't know enough to cover why the Bible is true in, like, ten, less than 10 minutes. But I want to give you two things to take away. And this may sound a little bit like a history lesson, but that's because it is. You need to know that the Bible is a book, is a story that took place in actual time, in actual history. I want to talk about two things, manuscripts and eyewitnesses. And again, this may sound like a boring history lesson. Please stay with me. This is so important for you to understand this in order to know why the Bible is true. What are manuscripts? Manuscripts are copies of documents that were written down. Years ago, when people were writing down the books of the Bible, other people would come along and copy them, and you would have a certain number of manuscripts that were written. Historians will look back at an ancient document, and the way that they judge how trustworthy it is, is they want to say, how many manuscripts do we have existing from that time period? There's a Greek historian named Herodotus who has 109 manuscripts from his time period. 
Livy, a Roman historian, has 150 of his works. Tacitus has 33 manuscripts from his works. Pliny the Elder has 200 from his works. Okay, did you get those numbers? These are historians that scholars look at and say, yes, their works are trustworthy. You can believe them because we have enough existing manuscripts. 109, 150, 33, 200. You know how many the New Testament has? Over 18,000 existing manuscripts. The Old Testament has over 42,000 manuscripts, codices, and scrolls. And we still look at the Bible and say, yeah, that's not trustworthy. Do you see the difference there? Like, that is Satan at work. Taking these huge weighted scales and saying, like, yeah, you can believe this stuff over here, but the Bible, uh uh-uh. Manuscripts don't matter when it comes to the Bible. Guys, this book has been so well documented. There's a guy named John Warwick Montgomery. I'm just going to paraphrase what he says because he uses a lot of, like, really, like, well-educated lingo that I don't even understand. He basically says this. If you're going to doubt the Bible, then you have to doubt everything that was written during that time period because nothing has been as well documented as the Bible, and it's not even close. Manuscripts matter. But let's talk about eyewitness accounts because this might matter even more. There are 18 different sources from the first century that say that Jesus was a real person. Twelve of those 18 sources were not even Christian. Two-thirds of those sources were not even Christian. You know what that means? It means that we have more proof that Jesus existed than we do that Julius Caesar existed. That's crazy. And there are still people out there who say, oh, Jesus wasn't a real person. He didn't actually exist. We have more historical documented evidence that Jesus existed than we do that Julius Caesar existed. And two-thirds of those sources were not even Christian sources. But let's talk about the eyewitnesses. Who are the first people who saw Jesus after he rose from the dead? Women. Women. You know why that's a big deal? Because women in that day and age were considered second-class citizens. Their testimony did not even count in court. Like if a woman was to give an eyewitness testimony in court, everyone in court would stand up and say, uh-uh, nah, don't listen to her. This doesn't matter. She's a second-class citizen. So why in the world... If the disciples were making up a story about Jesus rising from the dead, why in the world would they say that women were the first people to see him? You would not say that if you were making up that story. The only reason they said it was because it's true. It's because that's how it happened. Let's talk about the enemies of Jesus. Jesus had plenty of enemies who didn't like him. There were several first century Jews who called Jesus, listen to this, a sorcerer who led Israel astray. Now you would think... If the enemies of Jesus were trying to disprove who he was, they would just say, yeah, all those miracles and stuff that you've heard about, those didn't really happen. They're lying. They're making that up. But they couldn't say that because too many eyewitnesses saw the miracles happen. So instead they said he was a sorcerer who led Israel astray. Listen, if the enemies of Christianity had to say that Jesus was a sorcerer, then it means that something miraculous happened. These are eyewitness testimonies. And lastly, let's talk about this. This is the last thing. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says that over 500 people saw Jesus after he rose from the dead at one time. 500 people. And then Paul says, many of whom are still alive. In other words, 
Like you can go ask them yourself, go talk to them. Many of them are still alive. They'll tell you what they saw. I'm listening to a podcast right now about a murder that took place in Mississippi back in the 90s. And this woman, uh, this investigative journalist is going through trying to uncover some of the things that may be hidden about this mystery. And, uh, and so what she's doing is she's going and talking to the actual eyewitnesses and saying like, tell me what you saw that day. You were in the store when this happened. You were across the street. What did you see? What do you think happened? Eyewitness testimony matters. Paul is saying the same thing. He's saying, look, if you're doubting that Jesus rose from the dead, many of these people that I'm mentioning here, they're still alive. Go talk to them. Go talk to them, and they'll tell you exactly what they saw. Eyewitness testimony matters. Here's what I'm saying. Let me sum this up. The Bible is not just some obscure book that was pulled out of the middle of the desert, one copy, and somebody said, this is it. This is what we're going to base our faith on. This is what we're going to believe. The Bible is a story that has been copied over and over again, that has been passed down from generation to generation with hundreds of eyewitnesses who saw what happened. Here's what I'm saying. Jesus was a real person. Jesus believed in the Bible. 500 people saw him rise from the dead, which means that Jesus is who he says he was. And if Jesus is who he says he was, then you can believe the Bible because he believed it. That was a logical line of reasoning I just gave you. This is not some fairy tale I'm making up. Jesus was a real person. 500 people saw him rise from the dead, which means he is who he says he is. Which means you can believe the Bible because Jesus believed the Bible. Do you see that? Like, this is something that, a story that actually took place in history that you can put your trust and your faith in. But even then, look, we will have doubts and we will have struggles. And I'm telling you all this so that you can lean into this when those doubts come and know that this is a real story that actually took place. And if this is true, it changes everything. And I'm going to close with this. Just listen to it. Matthew 7, verses 28 through 29. Jesus is teaching the scriptures to everyone around him. And then Matthew says this. When Jesus had finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. Who were the scribes? The scribes copied things down that other people said. That's what scribes do. But Jesus didn't teach them as a scribe. He taught them with authority. What is the root word of authority? I bet you can figure this out. Author. Do you know what Matthew's saying? Listen, this is awesome. He's saying that Jesus isn't teaching the scriptures like one of the scribes who is copying it down. Listen, Jesus taught the scriptures as if he wrote them, because he did, because he is the author of the scriptures, and he is the author of all creation. And tomorrow we're going to talk about the author's story and how that changes everything. All right, let's pray. God, you are so good to us to actually give us eyewitness accounts and historical evidence of all the things that the Bible is teaching us. So, Lord, we know that all of our faith hinges on you. And we know that you were real and that you are who you said you were as the person of Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. We also know that you believe the scriptures. 
so we can believe the scriptures. So I pray that you would help us to turn away from all the false narratives and stories of this world and believe in the scriptures instead and be guided by those, be guided by your words, not the false words of this world or our enemy. And would you give us wisdom to navigate that? Would you give us people in our lives to help us walk through those false stories together so that we can find our way to the truth? And you are the way, the truth, and the life. So would you help us to believe in you even when we doubt? And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, guys. Y'all have a great day. Oh,